Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. The ISO with myself, Dan Dickow for SB Live. Continues on. Today's guest, someone who I've gotten to know over the last few years as I've gradually gotten more opportunities with the CBS Sports family. He is one of their staples. Been with them for about a decade now. Calls some of their best events. Happy to have him join the ISO, Andrew Catalan. Andrew, how are you? What's up, Dan? It's great to see you. I haven't seen you, I think, since before the world shut down, we were in Vegas for the Mountain West tournament, just kind of in the lobby, like getting coffee, and then things changed a little bit. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've we've had a lot of common sites for games, whether it was Division Two national title games or Mountain West uh, tournaments in Las Vegas. But yeah, you're right. Um, that was some of the last games that happened before the world shut down. What were you planning on calling that year in the NCAA tournament? Because I know I had Westwood One Radio uh, in the NCAA tournament uh, that got shut down. Yeah, I mean, I think the way I remember it is we were there for the quarterfinals and semifinals of the Mountain West. I was going to head home after the tournament and then get ready to watch the selection show. Um, but obviously that never happened. So, I, you know, I've been doing the, the NCAA tournament for CBS since 2014, the first and second rounds. So I was just gearing up for that, uh, but unfortunately, it never happened. Well, we're seemingly getting back to a little bit of normalcy, and with that normalcy means normal sporting events where we're calling events live and in person, um, and then you're getting the crowd at most venues back and really kind of involved with the the game and providing a great atmosphere. Is there one favorite venue that you have? And we'll get into the, some of the sports and details that you've been able to be a part of, but do you have one favorite event to call a game at? Well, I would say that for for me, being at the Masters is second to none. I mean, I, I love doing the NFL, and to me, there's nothing like March Madness, but I think that every week when the Masters, every year when the Masters comes, it's just my favorite week of the year. It's just an amazing place. There's so much history. I, I kind of get into the history of it. And um, it's also a, a neat thing to work at CBS and be there because you see so many of your colleagues, like me and you call countless basketball games where we hardly ever get to work or see each other. But at the Masters, you see some people that you don't always get to see. So it's almost like a reunion every year. And of course, it's the greatest golf there is. I was hoping our conversation was going to get to the Masters at some point. It's a, it's a sporting event that I've never been able to uh, to go and, and, and watch. It's on my bucket list. Playing Augusta Nationals on my bucket list. Have you had a chance to play Augusta? I have not. Um, I'm not nearly as good as you, so maybe that's a good thing for the course that they uh, they don't let me. I haven't played, but um, 
I would love to one day. It, it is just spectacular. As soon as you walk in those gates, everything is pristine. And um, I think the biggest thing is that when you watch it on TV, and there's been more television evolution over the last few years, but the thing that stuck out the first time that I went there was you don't realize how much the elevation changes, how much there's hills and slopes and the greens. I mean, that is the one thing I think when you go on your bucket list that you'll be like, wow, I didn't realize it was like this. And that's what's pretty special the first time you attend. So calling a golf tournament as big as the Masters is and, and all of the excitement that is around it, how do you prepare um, for that event? Because it's much different than preparing for, say, a football game or a basketball game. And then with your preparation, what do you focus in on? I think when it comes to covering a golf tournament for me, whether it's the Masters or the John Deere Classic, I mean, the, the big thing is just watching golf year round, knowing the players, the storylines, because there's so many that you'll see, like to your point for a college basketball game, there's really 16 to 18 players that we need to know going into that game, but you don't know how a, a golf tournament will unfold. And it's hard to have notes for 200 players um, but at least you have some semblance like, oh, yeah, I remember he made a good run at Pebble Beach because I was watching it. So I, I try to watch as much as possible. And then certainly you need to know the course as well. Um, you know, for each tournament, I'm assigned different holes that I cover. So at the Masters, it could be seven and 14. So I need to know like every inch of those two holes so that if a player hits it off to the right. I know what they might have coming up or what the difficulty of the shot may be. So I think course knowledge is very important. And that's something that for football or basketball, you don't worry about. I mean, the, the, the courts are the same. The fields are pretty much the same, but that, that's a unique part of preparing for golf. So when you talk about, say, say you have the seventh and the 14th hole, for example, at Augusta National, you get a chance to walk the course a couple days prior to the tournament, I would imagine. And then where are you stationed um, during the actual round? Because obviously I know I've been to a couple PJ events on the 18th uh, green. They typically have the big, uh, you know, setup. What is it like on most holes at Augusta? Yeah, so for, for that tournament, I sit uh, up in the 14th tower behind the 14th green. And then for other tournaments on the PGA Tour that I cover during the year, we've kind of gone to like a big tower where a lot of the announcers are all together. And I love that because, you know, the way they do it is they kind of divvy up the holes. Like I'm responsible for, let's say the John Deere for seven, nine, 12, 15, 18. And then Frank Nabilo is responsible for 11, 13, 17. But the way that we do it now is that I can look at Frank in this one tower. And even though we're on, different holes that we're calling we can still converse we can still feel like when it's my time to jump in or when it, he can jump in and and I, and I love that part of it because you really think about a golf broadcast it's so different than anything else because there's multiple announcers mm -hmm. I mean in basketball it's play-by-play -play analyst sideline right in golf you have five different people calling holes uh, two people walking on the grounds. You have Amanda doing interviews. There's so many different people that have roles that the traffic of it, balancing who gets in when and where is very tricky. It took me a long time to figure that out. I still don't know if I have a full grasp on it because it's, you know, when you're the play-by-play -play guy in basketball, you call the play. But 
someone else is calling the play for another hole in golf. So it's, it's fascinating to hear the traffic in your ear with the producer and who's up and where we're going next. It's very different. It does sound like it's very different and, and you have to be organized. Your notes have got to be ready to go. So, so when it's your turn, uh, when you hear words from the producer to go, you're ready to, 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 you know, share your experiences or your knowledge. Now athletes, they get used to kind of being out there in the bubble. Um, some athletes perform better under pressure than others. What separates in your eyes a great, a good from a great athlete um, at a event like the Masters that is one of the four majors in golf? Well, I mean, I think that if we should ask anyone about being an athlete, we should ask you and not me because uh, <laughs> my athletic career died in high school on the baseball field. I understand your point. I'm just saying, you know, I, I think it's handling pressure, handling nerves. And you play golf. You know that if there's, you know, a little, you know, scratch on the line, those five-foot putts can sometimes <laughs> feel like 25-foot putts. And I think that's that's what you have to be in golf. You have to be mentally tough because you know that, every shot matters and everyone's watching and there's only four majors. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's such an incredible mental test. Do you ever get yourself, uh, catch yourself maybe pulling, uh, for maybe the crowd favorite, if you can sense a momentum from an underdog, do you catch yourself maybe pulling for him, uh, and trying to rein back your excitement and your call by any chance? I don't, I mean, I think, you would agree that like when I show up for a basketball game or an NFL game, I, the only thing I root for is a close game. Yes. You know, I, I just want to have like something on the line late and it doesn't always work out that way. And of course we're prepared to share other stories if it gets out of hand, but I, I don't really root for a player or team. I just, I just want a close game at the end. Cause that to me, that's the most fun part of it. Yeah. There's nothing like calling a close basketball game. And I'm sure for you, it's either a basketball game or it's a close, uh, you know, 18th hole, two guys going down the fairway. Somebody's got to step up to the challenge and, and make a great shot um, or on the football field, make a big play. Now, you've also you also cover the NFL really close. Uh, you call games for CBS. What has been the what is the biggest challenge for a broadcaster in knowing that in the NFL there's. 55, 60 guys on a roster, and you need to, to know baseline information on most of them. And then you got to go in depth and know uh, lots of stuff on, on some of the, the more higher profile players. Because, you know, preparing for a basketball game, 18 guys, football, two teams, two rosters, you're looking at 100 guys. How much prep yeah. is that and how difficult? It's by far the most prep that I do for any sport or event. I mean, my week starts on Monday goes right through to kickoff. And then as soon as the game ends, I'm, I'm moving on to watching film of the, of the next game. Um, you know, I think one of the bigger challenges is there's so much information out there about the NFL, more so than a lot of other sports. I mean, it's always on TV. It's always on your phone. There's always something happening in the NFL. And you have to stay on top of it because these fans – are going to watch every Philadelphia Eagles game all year. And I called one Eagles game this season. So to try to play catch up on a whole season worth of games that I didn't really watch or see, well, it helps to know Nick Sirianni, the head coach, and he came from Indianapolis. I got to know him a little bit there. And, you know, I think that what I've found is the more times that you've been around it, you, you, you meet more people and you kind of stash those memories away 
so that when it comes time to call a team that you haven't really seen, you're ready to jump in. But there's no doubt that I'll spend, I can't even add it up, but it's a lot of hours preparing for an NFL game because you make one mistake and, and then, you know, everyone will know it because these fans are so passionate and they've watched every single game. Yeah, I've, I've done similar where I, I, I've called plenty of basketball games, mispronounce a name uh, by by complete accident or you get the years wrong on an award for a player in the past and all of a sudden Twitter lights up and you're hearing things left and right like hey you don't know anything you're talking about it's like slow down a second here <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to share as much information in a, in a quick time frame as possible while still kind of conveying what's going on during the game what's the typical cadence like for you in the broadcast booth in football because obviously basketball it's it's really quick but sometimes in football unless it's a hurry up offense uh you have a little bit longer time to kind of get into some storylines between plays am i correct yeah i would say that in basketball if you're telling a story and it's in the first half and it kind of bleeds over a basket some you'll keep going a lot sometimes like if you're in the middle of the story Football, I would say the challenge is like you've got to be ready to call that next snap. So you can't really have those stories bleed into a play because that could be the only touchdown of the game. Um, so I, I feel like you can then pick up that story after that play if it's a three-yard run. I feel like in basketball, there's a little more conversation, mm -hmm. especially in the first half. In football, it's a little more like, all right, I'm going to call this play. The analyst is going to jump in. We're either going to talk for 15 seconds while they're in the huddle or he's going to break down a replay. But then it's like, okay, it's second and seven. Let's go. So it is a little more rhythmic in that sense. Um, so the challenge is working in those nuggets that you worked hard on all week and those little side stories within the time that they're in the huddle. And then if you get a team that doesn't huddle, well, that's when everything gets thrown out the door. That's like two fast break teams in college basketball where they don't stop and there's no whistles because then it becomes very challenging to know, all right, well, are they going to huddle? No huddle. Are they going to go right to the line? Are they going to call out signals? Are they going to milk the clock to, to know when to get in and tell a story there makes it even more difficult. Learning the little nuances of broadcasting is something that it, it takes time. It takes reps. It takes experience. You went to probably the most well-known broadcasting school in Syracuse. Tell us a little bit about just how competitive that Syracuse broadcasting school is. Because as I've gotten a little further along in my broadcasting career, I've worked with so many guys uh, that have a background of Syracuse, and they're all very passionate about how good that school was for them. I would say, Dan, absolutely. It's a phenomenal school, but I also think there's a number of great journalism schools around the country, and I think it's all what you make of it. Um, I think that the Syracuse education that I had was phenomenal, but I also did a number of internships when I was in school, and I learned hands-on and got experience that way. If I had just relied on the experiences I had in the classroom, yeah, I could have maybe ended up in the same place, but I think it's really what you turn it into when you're a college student and making the most of your experience. But to the Syracuse part of it, um, it's a it's a family. Um, I think that you've seen that when there's, there's guys that you run across, we're, we're all rooting for each other. But it was also very competitive in college because you know that there's one job that 300 people are going to apply to and they're some of your really good friends. So 
I think what I took away most from it is that the professors there uh, were very honest. And that's what I think you need in this business. You've got to be able to have thick skin and you've got to be able to take feedback and criticism and and thrive off of that and not be offended by it. And, and I think that when my professor told me to, you know, cut my hair or make it longer or, you know, you're doing this wrong, like I was receptive to that. And if you're not in this business, especially, I think I think you could have a short shelf life because so much is adapting and, and realizing that it's very different. How you sound, how you look actually matters at some points in this business. Those are really good points, because I do agree the thick skin is a necessity in this industry, especially with social media, because, as I mentioned, one small mistake on a pronunciation or a fact can kind of uh, spread like wildfire, <laughs> whether it's for right or for wrong or, or you know, by accident uh, or maybe by not, um, depending on the angle you're telling with the story. Go, let's go to the NCAA tournament now. Uh, you've had a chance to call a number of NCAA tournaments now, I believe since 2014 is what you said. Um, is there a tournament memory or experience that jumps out at you and be like, man, that was really cool to be a part of that. Yeah, I would say it was 2015 and it was Georgia State against Baylor. We were down in Jacksonville. It was a 314 game. And that was when uh, Ron Hunter was the head coach at Georgia State and his son, RJ, was the star player on the team. And the week prior in the conference championship game, Ron Hunter, who's a character, as I'm sure you know, he tore his Achilles, I believe, celebrating in the championship. I remember that. So, yeah, so he was actually on a scooter for the first round of the NCAA tournament game, coaching from the sideline. They were down big. They make this late comeback. And then his son, RJ, hit a deep three to give them the lead with a couple seconds left. And Ron Hunter fell off his scooter. He may have been on a, he fell off his stool at the point. He had a scooter after the game, but he was on a stool during the game. And just the father son part of it, the 14 seed, the magic of the NCAA tournament and the late shot for three and him falling. My call was, you know, Ron Hunter has fallen off his stool. That to me was what the NCAA tournament's all about. An underdog, a family connection, a big three late, everyone going nuts. The crowd was cheering for them because they were a 14 seed. Uh, that, that was my, my fondest NCAA tournament memory. I remember that NCAA tournament well, and that was a fun run to watch. And you're right, the excitement of father or son and that big shot uh, provided a lot of joy for people watching that game. Um, with you working three major sports for CBS, how much time do you have to kind of relax before you move into the next session or season for CBS? Because you go NFL football, focus on college basketball, and then right into the Masters. Um, how much downtime is there for you? And then how much time does it take you to get up to speed to the next sport? Yeah. I would say that football NFL is by far my busiest uh, time that fall in the fall for everything we've talked about earlier in the sense of the preparation that goes in for it. 
not that I don't prepare as hard for the other events, but I just, there's just more of it because of the volume of players that we talked about. Uh, college basketball, as you know, like me and you will call two games a week. And I've, I've never felt like that's, you know, too many per se, because you can, you can get up to speed pretty quick on, on the eight players that we'll see in the game. I think the quietest time for me is in the spring and summer. That's really when I, I recharge. I try to play golf, even though I'm, I'm poor at it, like once a week. Um, I'm going to hopefully hope coach my son's baseball team this year. I, I have a little more time um, then, and that's really the time that I uh, can kind of take a, a, a deep breath and, and, uh, and relax and then get ready for the next football season. Well, one last question for you in regards to the Masters, because I know that's where you'll be uh, as soon as the NCAA tournament's over. Part three tournament, is it as unique and fun of event as it seems to be when you watch it on TV? Yeah, and I know this might sound sappy, and I've mentioned the family part of it before with the, the Hunters and the NCAA tournament. But to me, when I, the reason I fell in love with golf was because my grandfather played, and we would play together. And I feel like the family part of the Masters is fully on display in the Par 3 tournament. You've got grandkids caddying. You've got little kids running around with the caddy suits. I mean, that is a real fun, special day. And everyone approaches it differently when you're an athlete. Some people like, you know, relaxing the day before competition begins. Other people might be like, you know, I just want to, you know, focus and get ready. So everyone handles it differently. But I think those that, that do play it, I know they love it because it's so much fun. Well, Andrew, I appreciate the time. Uh, I know I watched some NFL this past year and, and I always enjoy your calls there, but uh, more so with college basketball. And I'll be <laughs> honest, even more so with the Masters because it's probably my favorite event, uh, regardless of sport, to watch every single year. So thanks again for joining. And I'm sure our paths will cross uh, during conference tournament player of the NCAA tournament this year. So take care. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'll see you soon. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.